Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm glad each one of you are here. And if you'd open your Bibles along with me to uh, Exodus chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be picking up verses 1 through 7. Actually, uh, we're going to be covering 1 through 12 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and how thankful we are for who you are, for your love, for your compassion towards us, and the great creative power that you have displayed in us as human beings. And I pray, Father, that you would use us to become alive in you, to serve you, and to bring many to salvation. We live in a world filled with lost and dying people, and we are the hope, and therefore let us shine for you, O Lord. I pray, Father, that you would fill each one of us to overflowing with the power, the dunamis of your Holy Spirit, that we might be able to serve you faithfully wherever we go and in whatever we do. And we pray and ask this in Jesus, Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. I think sometimes of strange things when we're singing our songs. And I was thinking, thinking of the fact that um, biologically, every one of us, we have... Um, 46 chromosomes, every one of us. It's called the diploid number. And except for our sex cells, those are haploid. We have 23 chromosomes. And just think of what a miracle that this is, that the sperm cell has 23 chromosomes, the egg cell has 23 chromosomes, and when they come together, you have 46. And that's when fertilization takes place and a new living being is formed. If that's not from God, I don't know what else can be. And how amazing it is as well. Some people make jokes about this, but I think there's a reason. The egg cell of the woman is XX, the chromosomes. Of the man, it's XY. And whichever fertilizes the woman's egg cell, if she's an X, obviously, if it's an X sperm cell that goes in, it's XX, the baby's going to be a girl. If the Y goes in, then it's an XY, and it's going to be a boy. And I actually have had students say to me, if a woman is XX, why isn't a man YY? Well, he'd be probably pretty like a Neanderthal or something, I don't know. But I think that there is a softness from women that God wants us to have. You follow what I'm saying? And it's just so amazing what a miracle this is. Because when the egg is fertilized, the instant it's fertilized, a coating goes around it that allows no other sperm cell in. Isn't that amazing how great God is? And then this baby, I, I'm, I'm thinking of it because uh, John was telling me Jen's actually in the hospital right now delivering a baby. And this, you know, this, this, you know, this beautiful t uh, fertilization of eggs turning into a zygote, turning into a fetus, you know, just how beautiful it is. And then a baby is born. And when that baby is born, that child is a creature of Almighty God with the capacity to be born again of the Spirit, to become His child. And the reality is, it's all of our responsibility to make sure that child does become a Christian and is raised in the faith. Because that child comes out of the mother's womb and it's like, you know, a sponge waiting to soak up whatever it can. And if a child is soaking up the waves of this world, it's not a good thing. 
the child is soaking up the ways of God. It's a very good thing. And the thing that's so wonderful and patient and magnificent about our God is that you could have a child that's born and is raised up and they're like a giant sponge just saturated with the, all the crap of this world and the Lord can use someone to come to them and just wring all that out and let that sponge be open again to receive all the things of God. These are the promises we have. God is so amazing. There is no way you, can, you could ever explain life, existence as we have it, other than creation, that a creator God. And the only reason God created us according to his word is for love's sake. God loves us. He absolutely loves us. And in turn, we need to turn, return that love to him. And it seems like I'm getting a little bit off track there, but I'm not. Because what we see going on in Egypt is this battle we're talking about. You have a self-righteous, self-sanctimonious man who believes, literally, he is God of Egypt. And he is subservient to all the superior gods of Egypt. But he is a God, the living representation, in a sense, like the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. That's what he believes, ministering to the Egyptians. Then you have Moses who's been humbled by the Lord for over 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness. And he's coming simply in the name of the Lord. And we have a great conflict that takes place. It's very amazing. And so once again, right here in the first verse, the Lord is asking Pharaoh to let his people go. He wasn't asking for them to be released just so they could go and wander in the desert. Let my people go so they can just kind of wander in the desert and die. He wanted them to be released so that they might worship him. We'll find out as we start reading this portion. Understand, the Lord wasn't really asking Pharaoh to let his people go. We're going to find as we read this portion of scripture, he was telling Pharaoh to let his people go. The Lord doesn't have to ask permission He commands, and it is so. He is God. He said, let there be, and there was. And so he is always, he's never out of charge with history. So, when the Lord gives us a command, there's only two responses we can have. There's only two to the Lord's commands. You can't have a maybe. It is either yes, Lord, or no, Lord. You had Agrippa who said, Paul, you've almost convinced me. Maybe tomorrow. There's no maybes with the Lord. It's either yes or no. And the Lord has given us commands, and our only response should be, yes, Lord, yes. You know, for instance, um, our young pastor, Frank, uh, has been invited um, by the FCA, Federation of Christian Athletes, to go to Guatemala in October. And um, because at the Remsen camp that they have here every year, the dirt bike camp, uh, it's amazing how many young people come to know Jesus Christ. Vi and I had the pleasure of being there the Thursday night that Frank was preaching and giving the altar call. And uh, almost the whole camp went forward. Uh, Kids that had been witnessed to by others in our church got saved the grandson of the man who owns all that land and and put the track in, got saved. 
we looked up and, and the whole front was packed with young men and women turning to Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And so the Lord gave Frank an opportunity, maybe even a command, saying, Frank, we go to Guatemala. And there's only one answer we can give the Lord is yes. No, it's, it's really a, um, an oxymoron to say, no, Lord. <laughs> no, you're my Lord, but no. I'm, because when you say no, Lord, you know what you're really saying? Honestly, I'm Lord. That's what you're really saying. So you have to respond. So we want to be praying for uh, Pastor Frank, and he'll be leaving in October. The Lord is already providing uh, amazingly for his support to be able to go. And what they do is they actually teach dirt biking, and all, of course every kid in the area comes around, and then they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and take care of other needs. They build facilities and like that while they're there as well. So... Just keep that in mind, my brothers. And uh, so anyway, we all know that the best answer that we can give to the Lord is yes, Lord, yes. And, um, but the problem is many refuse to comply to the Lord. And that actually makes them like Satan because Satan was his own God. And because love requires choice, okay, we have to understand that. People have the ability to say no. And I've shared this with you before, but love requires choice. <clears throat> There's no way anyone can be forced into a situation, and of course they comply because they're being forced, and then you can say they did it out of love. There's no way. Love requires choice. I choose to do this, whether it's in the relationship between a man and a woman, or whether it's our relationship with the Lord. It's a choice to do or to not do. But a day is coming when all choice will be removed and it's too late. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, turn here, please. Keep your finger here in Exodus 9. Philippians 2, starting with verse 9, I'm going to read verses 9 through 11, talking about Jesus Christ. God has, um, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, even those who have rejected him, even those who have followed after Satan, even Satan himself will recognize him as Lord. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now it's important for us to understand this because as we get into our portion in Exodus this morning, we're going to find out um, Pharaoh didn't want to comply. He was his own God. And understand Pharaoh is an example of many people today. We live in a world that is so chaotic and crazy and 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 even going more out of touch with reality and it's because men and women want to be their own god and it doesn't work that way so in exodus chapter 9 starting with verse 1 then the lord said to moses go into pharaoh and tell him thus says the lord god of the hebrews let my people go that they may serve me 
For if you refuse to let them go and uh, still hold on them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on your horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. A very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this, will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children, children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of, Israel, of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Now, to me, it's interesting that there is no mention in this particular portion of Moses giving pharaoh a chance and pharaoh saying no there's not even mentioned and i couldn't help thinking uh it's like so many people have you ever known that there are some people that it's almost not worth asking them because you know the answer is no even before you ask because they've already displayed over and over and over and over and over again what their attitude is that's why in this portion it says and god hardened pharaoh's heart and uh in the word there for harden means made it more secure you know, in his, in his um, thought process. In other words, in his answer. It doesn't mean that God took his free will choice away. He just reinforced what Pharaoh already believed. And that's the reason I don't think you have that whole exchange between he and Moses of whether he'd be willing to or not. And um, I think that the question that probably so many people have is why in the world wouldn't Pharaoh believe God and repent? How could you have all this going on around you? You've seen plague after plague. You've seen the way God is working. Why wouldn't you say, you know, Jesus is Lord. God is God. God, Yahweh is God. And just give up. But no, he doesn't. He doesn't relent. The answer why he wouldn't relent is this. It's very simple. For him to relent, for him to confess that God was right, he would have to admit he was wrong. We have a hard time with that. He'd have to admit he was wrong and that he was not God in Egypt. He'd have to admit that. I'm wrong and I'm not God in Egypt. And that, of course, requires humility. Some of you who are old enough might remember the TV show Happy Days. And remember who the cool guy was on Happy Days? The Fonz. And remember the Fonz had a hard time saying I was wrong? And one, one time they were trying to push him to say he was wrong. And he goes, yeah, I was, I was, he couldn't say he was wrong. And, but that's the reality of many of us today. We can't say we're wrong because we think we're our own God. I make choices for my life. No one else. No one's going to impose their will on me. Not even God. And that was the problem that Pharaoh had. And he was so full of pride. And pride was his downfall. Pride was the downfall of the devil. You know why? Because he loved himself more than he loved God. And we all deal with pride, right? So let's deal with it. 
You know, we all deal with pride. It doesn't mean, oh, yeah, we all deal with pride, so I guess I'm prideful. No, we all deal with pride. Let's deal with pride. Let's take a stand against it. Let's work towards having victory in those areas. I think there's too many times that we just look at things like, well, that's just the way it is. Well, it is just the way it is, but it doesn't have to stay the way it is. You know what I'm saying? And the Lord wants us to move on in our obedience to him. And not just, you know, stand still saying, well, it's just the way it is. I guess you can't change, you know, leopard can't change his spots, you know, and this and that. But I've seen a lepon and a lipon and all those other things. So anyway, I'm not getting off track there a little bit, so I'll stop. And um, now, also, I wanted to read this. We all deal with pride. Let's see. In Isaiah 14.3, this is the devil's problem. And it's the problem we have as well. In Isaiah 14.13, Isaiah 14.13, if you take notes. For you have said in your heart, talking about Satan, for you have said in your heart, your cardia, your inner man, my innermost feelings, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the throne of God. And any time you and I say, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the Lord is showing me. This is what I'm going to do anyway. You are exalting your throne above the throne of God. You're falling to the same exact sin as the devil. And we have to make sure that we don't do that because the results are disastrous. Now, <clears throat> you know, many are much more concerned about being right, wouldn't you believe, than embracing what is right. And um, how many times have you been in an argument with your spouse or with a friend and they make a really good point and you just ignore it and come back with some kind of a counterpoint because they've really proven themselves to be right but you don't want to admit it? How wonderful it would be if we were able to have discussions with someone and they make, wow, a really good point, and we would simply say, hey, you know what? You're right. How wonderful that would be and how we would get along better as couples, as people, as a society. Now, to understand the impact of this plague you know, on all the cattle of Egypt, you must understand that the Egyptians worshipped cows, especially the black bull. They worshipped them. And livestock was um, a testimony of God's blessing to them. So it starts off here and it talks about, you know, first the cows died because that was, they were worshipped by Egypt. And, but then the livestock was a blessing from their God. And so to have all the livestock die was showing that their gods were not in charge. And the Egyptians worshipped cows, especially the black bull, and all livestock, was like as I said, was a sign of God's blessing. Now, it's interesting. Archaeologists, you uh, ever go on the, that station, the history station, look at all these archaeological things? There's one um, website you want to go to, but be careful when you're putting it in, okay, on your website. And it's called the Naked Archaeologist. And he, he's not naked. But what he, the whole point is, is he just takes archaeology and lays everything naked. I think he's a believer, not a Christian, probably a Jewish believer. And um, 
but it's really, really, really interesting. But anyway, archaeologists have unearthed numbers of bull mummies. You don't ever think of a bull mummy, do you? And um, the second largest temple in Egypt was in Memphis, and it was set up for the worship of the black bull Apis. And a new Apis was believed to be born on the death of the old one. And this is why they embalmed and buried them, because they were met, you know, thought to be sacred. And they were buried right in Memphis. Epis uh, was, the, uh, was the, the bull, Epis the bull, I'm sorry, was thought to represent all the power of the gods of Egypt. You know, the bull, to represent all the power of the gods of Egypt. Remember, we, Frank and I have been sharing with you that these plagues were also a damning testimony against all the false gods of Egypt. And in this case, we're looking at Epis. And um, how devastating this plague must have been. Because think about this. Not some or most, but all the livestock of Egypt were killed. All of them. And um, consider how many years it would take to build up that kind of livestock again. I mean, to breed them, to build up, it would take years and years and years. And um, you can't just go out and buy that much livestock. But here's the thing. When Pastor Frank preaches in the next sermon, he's going to be talking about hail coming down and killing the livestock of the Egyptians. So the natural question you have is, where did they come from? If all the livestock of the Egyptians were killed, every one of them, then in the very next plague, where did the livestock come from? Whose livestock wasn't killed? The Jews. And the Jews were slaves. So it's obvious to me, Pharaoh went and sent to see if the livestock of Israel really were alive, and they were, and he said, guess what? They're mine now. And I think the livestock that we read about in the next place. See, every time in Scripture you read something and you think, well, that's a contradiction. All the livestock were killed, and now they've got livestock that are being killed by hail. How could that be? Well, if you look closely, you can see where they got the livestock. Remember, Israel was a population at least the size of all of Egypt. And so they didn't just have <clears throat> a few cows and chickens. I mean, they had livestock as many, maybe more than the Egyptians had. So the Egyptians just went in and confiscated it. And, um, and I always think about, just imagine the physical burden of burying all that livestock. They didn't have refrigeration. You'd probably eat as much as you could. The rest would rot and be foul, and you'd have to bury it in the land. It would have been quite a job. And uh, like we might suffer the inhumanity of man, we as believers, and we do, but as believers we'll never suffer the wrath of God. And whenever the, the, the plagues became personal, from the time of the flies, God separated the children of Israel from the children of Egypt. The Egyptians were plagued and the children of Israel were freed. They did not receive the plague. And... Uh, but the heart of Pharaoh, of course, became hard. And he did not let the people go. I don't understand that. Um, 
Now, it's interesting when it says the heart of Pharaoh became hard. The word hard is used here is labe, and it means used for feeling and for will, controlling even the intellect. In other words, it's when your feeling and your personal will even goes before, above your intellect. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, that kind of an attitude. And the word here for harden, which is kabah, and it literally means uh, to become stubborn, defiant, and it's implied that it is uh, based on uh, self-motivation, not logic. In other words, not logical. And so when it says he hardened his heart, he just became stupid to, to the reality of what was going on and just did things because that's what he wanted to do. And as we mentioned last week, God does not compromise. You know, well, why didn't God? God doesn't compromise. Compromise indicate, indicates that you might be partially wrong or that maybe you reacted too harshly. And God can't do any of those things. Everything he does is perfect. And everything he does is based on love. And um, from the plague of flies to this point that we're looking at, devastation of the livestock, there's a distinction made between the children of Israel and the children of Egypt. And we have to understand that as believers because we're living in a time the world's going crazy. And the wrath of God is going to be poured out on this world. But we're not going to be here when the wrath of God occurs. Because he separates us from the world. The world is like Egypt. You know, rebellious and disobedient to God. And we are like the children of Israel. We are faithful to the Lord. And he's going to remove us. And it's taken from the word, Latin word, raptos, which means to be caught up. To meet the Lord in the air, and there we shall be with him forevermore. How amazing is that? You really believe that's going, going to happen? I absolutely believe that's going to happen. I don't have any question. And the times we're living in, the, the times we're living in, brothers and sisters, are crazy. The violence, the, the, we're seeing things in our lifetime that we've never seen before. The trafficking of children. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not a violent man, but when I think of the trafficking of children, I'd love to have three machine guns. Now, really, I'd like to go in and take those guys and just mow them down. Because that's so perverted. But that's the society we live in, and it's getting worse. It's happening all around us. You're reading the paper about a mother killing her children. You know, do you understand how unnatural that is? That's the world we live in. And so, therefore, I'm so thankful that it tells us in Luke 21, 36, write this, write this down, Luke 21, 36, and it says, Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, listen to this, and stand before the Son of Man. And in Corinthians, it tells us what that means. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and we'll stand before the Son of Man right in the clouds. He's descending to the clouds. When he descends to earth, we'll be with him. But he descends to the clouds to take us out of the wrath. And how amazing is that? See, Pharaoh wanted confirmation that it was true that God had preserved his people, the people of Israel, from this tragedy. And yet his heart was not changed at all. To accept the God of the Hebrews 
that he was the one true God would require Pharaoh to testify to the fact that his gods were false and his leadership was weak. And he wasn't about to do that. He was unwilling to do it. I want to read to you a statement by Professor Richard uh, Lewinwith, uh, and he was probably one of the greatest geneticists, uh, but he was also a proclaimed Marxist and evolutionist. And um, so Professor Lewinton, that's how you pronounce his name, and uh, he was also self-proclaimed Marxist, and he's certainly one of the world's leaders in evolutionary biology, and he wrote this very revealing comment at a genetic evolutionary conference in 1998, and it illustrates the uh, impact uh, and philosophical bias against Genesis creation, regardless whether or not the facts support it. Okay, now listen to what this guy is saying. Listen carefully. This is the leading geneticist, evolutionary geneticist. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science. Listen to this. In spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. This is what I'm reading. It's a direct quote from him. In spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for to uh, for understand to understand just so-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our prior adherence to, to uh, material causes to re- create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanation, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying and, un- and, and uh, uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. As the eminent uh, Kant scholar Louis Beck used to say, anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regulations of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. Do you know what you have here? A religion. You have here faith. I mean, he's saying it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't line up our evolutionary concept and understanding of how everything came about. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't line up. But you know what? We just believe it anyway. Because the only other reality, the only other explanation we could have is allowing a divine foot in the door, which we won't do. Okay, verses 9 through 12. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of uh, ashes from the furnace and let Moses scatter it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. 
and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh and Moses and scattered them towards heaven, and they caused boils that, that break out in sores on men, on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. It's likely that Pharaoh broke out in boils right in front of Moses when this command was given. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And this now is the first time that God is touching man himself. Everything else was an outside influence affecting man, but now he's physically touching man. And I believe what we read in Romans is also God touching man because of the sinful world we live in. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. This is not a popular verse to read today, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 27. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because uh, what may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has shown it to them. In other words, they don't have any excuse. They know. God has shown them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his elementary, elemental power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No excuse. They know. God has shown them. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, the therefore is, so is telling us what all this is leading to. Everything we've read, therefore, God has given them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, listen, God has given them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, um, burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And I think what we see today happening with AIDS and STDs is all part of God's curse upon man because of his immorality. God created sex for marriage as a beautiful thing. Two people coming together. Like... Sometimes, and you might want to remember this, 
uh, sometimes when people, uh, you know, they know I'm a believer and they'll say to me, well, what, what do you think of gay marriage? And I say, well, there's no such thing. Well, what do you mean? Well, marriage means to become one. And it's not talking about just a sexual uh, union. It's talking about a man and woman. They create a baby. And the baby is, is uh, half them and half, you know, the, the chromosomes of the baby are, are part the father, part the mother. That's the two becoming one. That's what marriage is. That's what it means. And two men and two women can't do that. So they might have some kind of a civil relationship or they might have some kind of an emotional relationship, but they can't be married. It's impossible because they can't create a child together. So they're not, they can't be married. But, you know, when I was... Uh, I, I, my master's thesis, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but my master's thesis was on venereal disease. And it was, uh, I, was, I was a uh, health science major. And we don't realize how prevalent it is. Gonorrhea is second only to the common cold. There are two forms of venereal disease we never even hear about. One's granuloma inguinal, and the other one is lymphogranuloma venereum, LGV is called. And lymphogranuloma venereum is almost impossible to cure because by the time it's... Uh, found out that you have it, you're beyond a stage of curing. Granuloma inguinal can kill you within two weeks. So even before you know you have it, you're dead. And so this, to me, sounds like God has poured out a plague even in our time. And understand, just like in the plagues of Egypt, God doesn't pour out plagues just to be mean. He pours out plagues to wake people up. We need to be woken up. And realize that our world is falling apart morally in every possible way. And yet we, as believers, have a responsibility. Because I'll tell you what, you know, it's so tempting in the times in which we're living to put our candle under a basket, to kind of hide our light because people are going to mock us and make fun of us. No, we need to let our light shine. Everywhere we go, we need to let our light shine. Testify of Jesus. Be thankful for God. Have, have the heart of a Christian. And this is why we need to make sure that we don't play games with God's Word. You know, what one generation approves, another one, next generation abuses. You've heard that. It's been around for a long time. So we have to be very careful well, I don't think this is that big a deal. It might not be that big a deal with you, but it might be with your kids. It might be with those that are watching you. And that's the reason that we have to be so careful in the way we live because our life is a living... Scripture tells us, I'm not making this up, it says our life is a living testimony. Everywhere you go, everything you do is a living testimony. Does that mean you'll be absolutely perfect and never make a mistake? No. But people have an ability to look at your whole life. And they know that even a good person slips and falls and makes mistakes. The only difference is we get back up. We start moving forward in the right relationship with God. Because this kind of plague that we're reading about in Egypt is on our nation. You know, it might not be visible boils that we see now, but they're there. And because of these boils, false religion was out of business. And uh, because no priest could stand before Pharaoh or before his God with any blemish on his skin. It was against their religion. 
And God's judgment will fall on false religion in the last days as well. We're going to be gone, and then God's judgment is going to fall. It's interesting. It's a very similar thing. In Revelation 16, 2, it says, So the first is talking about the four angels with the bowl judgments. So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Listen to this. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And those sores are translated boils. I shared with you how many of the things we see in the plagues of Egypt and many of the things we see in the wrath of God being poured out on earth after the rapture of the church are somewhat similar. But understand, and we have to remember this, the reason God gave, allowed ten plagues, is so that people would have ten opportunities to confess and repent and to change. And I personally believe many of the Egyptians did. I believe that the large mixed multitude that left Egypt with the Jews were Egyptians. I think they got saved. And so we know that during the tribulation, many people come to faith. And so even though you and I might not be here during the tribulation, we have an opportunity to sow all kinds of seeds around us in the hearts of people. And I think that there are many who we have witnessed to for Jesus Christ who think we're crazy, who don't agree with us, who don't believe us, that when the rapture comes, they're going to be thinking they were right. And they will refuse the mark of the beast or to worship his image. They'll be the ones that continue to follow God even after the rapture of the church. And so, brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to live a life of purity, a life of holiness. But understand, and I think it's so important to make, make this point, we used to call it, and, and the, the, in, in the Greek, the, the phraseology is personal holiness. In other words, I want to live a holy and righteous life personally. It's, it's, it's my decision. And where you have a problem is where personal holy, holiness spreads out to group holiness. Here's the point I, I make. Well, God has shown me that I shouldn't do this or that. Therefore, you can't do this or that. So you have holiness going to legalism and works. And that's very, very dangerous. Because God might have given me the freedom to live my life a certain way. And maybe he's given you the liberty to live your life a certain way. Might not be exactly the same as mine. It's, not, it's never, never, never contrary to scripture. You understand. But maybe you have some freedoms that I don't. And so the thing we have to be careful of is to not pour out our beliefs on other people. There are some things, you know, for instance, um, if I went home and uh, sat down and ate a huge chocolate piece of chocolate cake with ice cream on it, chocolate ice cream on it, drizzled with uh, peanut butter and maybe some whipped cream on it, you know, for me it would be wrong. Understand? Because, you know, I'm supposed to take care of my temple. And I had a heart attack. I had two stents put in, and I'm supposed to lose weight. And I'm supposed to avoid certain foods. Okay? Then, on the other hand, you have some 
young kid who burns 800 million calories a day and playing all kinds of sports and, and this and that, and he sits down and he has that big chocolate cake and the ice cream and the peanut butter drizzle and the whipped cream, and it's totally okay for him. There's nothing in the Bible that says, thou shalt not eat chocolate ice cream. But you get the point I'm making. Sometimes things are okay for one and it's not okay for another. For me, it's sin. For, for this one, it's not. And so religions begin when you start pushing your personal beliefs, your personal thoughts and doctrines on others. Then you have religion. And religion never takes anyone to God. It's personal faith. And so um, this is a great example for us. When we look at this and we realize that, you know, hardness of heart is the worst thing because God will continue to give us opportunities to repent. And in order to give us opportunities to repent, he's going to, he oftentimes will bring certain difficulties upon us. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name because we love you and we desire to walk in all your ways and not the ways of the flesh. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use the portions that we studied this morning, use them, that we might apply them to our hearts and to our lives, that we might love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and be an example to all those around us that many might be saved. And so we give you thanks and ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we pray this in Jesus, Yeshua's name. Amen and amen. And happy Labor Day. You know, Labor Day was established to, you know, uh, celebrate the common person, you know, the laborer, that we might have a day of rest. So rest. <laughs>